Hello, friends. This is Dave Jennings. This is our last class where we're looking at Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. And in this class, we'll examine some of the incredible passages that we find in the works of the prophets that speak about Jesus Christ. Now, so far, we've seen how events in Genesis, as much as 4,000 years before the birth of Jesus, foreshadowed and talked about his work. And we've reviewed a couple of other Psalms that speak in great detail about Jesus, about his crucifixion, as well as his resurrection. Now what we're going to do is we're going to move to the works of the prophets. Most of them live between 800 and 600 years before the birth of Jesus. Now, a couple of words about prophecy. There's a big difference between Bible prophecy and predictions. Bible prophecy is much different. Predictions are things we might be able to think will come to pass. Predictions can come true. As an example, I could predict that the COVID-19 pandemic will end by the conclusion of 2021. That might be right. I might have some data that supports that. Or it might be absolutely wrong. It might be off by a few months. That prediction might come true or might not. But that's not how Bible prophecy works. Bible prophecy tells us what will happen. And it comes true 100% of the time. Each detail of prophecy is accurate and it unfolds just as the Bible says it will. So we can count on Bible prophecy to be completely accurate, even if our interpretation might not always be 100% accurate. So in this short class, we're going to look at just one of the prophets, the prophet Isaiah. Now, during the holidays, many of us have heard the singing of the Messiah. The Messiah was written by Handel in 1741. And it's a composition of scripture, largely taken from the book of Isaiah, the prophet. And it's known for its hallelujah chorus, whereby tradition, the audience stood up and still does today during its singing. It's a tradition that goes back to King George of England, who stood up himself so moved when he heard the first chorus in London. But today... We want to look at some of these passages just to see how clearly the prophet Isaiah spoke of Jesus Christ some 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And we're going to see connections back to David, and we're going to look forward to the time and the birth of Jesus Christ in this prophecy. So let's start in Isaiah chapter 9 at verse 6. We're going to go back to verse 2 for connection and context. We read this, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Now that should trigger for us something we've already seen that tells us about Jesus. Who was it that brought light to a world of darkness? It was Jesus Christ. And so those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them has light shone. So this is obviously going to be talking about Jesus. So let's go further into this prophecy in verse six, for unto us, a child is born to us, a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called wonderful 
Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. See, this passage is talking about a son yet to be born. And he's associated with bringing light to darkness. Now we know that to be Jesus. But we're also told that he's to be a ruler sitting on the throne of his father, David. And his kingdom, we're told, and its government are unique. Not only that it will bring peace, but it will be without an end. How then do we understand this? The way to identify Jesus as the king is to let the Bible do it for us. And in this case, we're going to read the words of the angel Gabriel, and it's going to make it very plain. The angel, the angel Gabriel said to her, and this is found in Luke chapter 1, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great. And he will be called the son of the most high. Now here it comes. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You see, Jesus was the son of God, but also the son of Mary. He was the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman that was going to conquer sin. And Mary was a descendant of King David. King David, who ruled in the united monarchy about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. She was going to give birth, though she was a virgin, to a son. And he would be called the son of the highest. And his name, we are told, was to be Jesus. His role was to be a king. And God would give him the throne of his father David, and his kingdom would have no end. So when we want to know about the identification of who Isaiah 9 is speaking about, it's very clear. But what is the throne of David all about? For this, we have to go back to the promise made to David. And it's recorded for us in 2 Samuel chapter 7, beginning at verse 12. Because David, you see, had proposed to build a house of God, a temple. And then God, in return, what he does is he provides David with a promise that is critical for us to understand Isaiah chapter 9 and Luke chapter 1 and to know who Jesus really was. Using the King James Version, I'm going to read here. And when thy days be fulfilled, speaking of David, and thou shalt sleep with thy fathers, I will set up thy seed after thee, and he shall proceed out of thy bowels, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build an house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And thine house and thy kingdom shall be established forever before thee. Thy throne shall be established forever. So when we see the repetition of forever, 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 it's telling us this is a kingdom that will be without end. And that David was going to have a seed 
that would sit on his throne and David himself would be able to see it. David knew he would have a descendant, a seed that would rule on his throne well after his death. And this king wasn't going to rule for a few decades. He was going to rule forever. And further, it was clear that he would see it. Now, why is that important? Because David believed in the resurrection, that he himself would be able to witness Jesus sitting on his throne. That's why in Acts chapter 2, Peter says, Brothers, I say unto you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ. The resurrection of the Christ. That he was not abandoned to Hades or the grave, nor did his flesh see corruption. David's hope, as he closed his eyes in death, was that he would once again awaken, be resurrected, and there would be a day coming that he himself would live and see his son ruling on his throne and reigning forever. And he also knew that Jesus would be not left in the grave, like all other men, but he would be resurrected to immortal life. Jesus would not see corruption. And that's what reminds us of the psalm that we looked at in Psalm 16. Now, one last connection. This message of a kingdom that would stand forever is also spoken about throughout the prophets. We can just look at one passage. It's in Daniel chapter 2. And it's a prophecy of the kingdoms of men that would rule over the people of, of Israel, the kingdom of Israel. After the last king, Zedekiah, had fallen, there was going to be a number of kingdoms of men that would go on until the time when David's throne would once again be occupied by the rightful king. And at the end of these kingdoms, God would bring about the restoration of the throne of David and establish a worldwide kingdom. Daniel chapter 2 at verse 44. And in the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to other people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. You see, Daniel's hope was David's hope. David's hope was the apostle Peter's hope. And it's our hope too. Jesus will return. He will raise the dead believers and establish his worldwide kingdom. See, using this key to scripture, we see multiple passages in the Bible that speak of Jesus as the coming king. And so we'll close with one of the most familiar passages in your Bible. Does it speak about a kingdom? Well, of course it does. It's the Lord's Prayer found in Matthew chapter 6. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So we've seen Jesus Christ throughout the Old Testament. He is the very center of God's plan and the one that was promised to conquer sin and be the great king over the earth. 
This is a Bible reading skill. We look for echoes that direct us back and forth through both the Old Testament and the New Testament. Much of what is promised in the Old Testament about Jesus was fulfilled. But for Bible readers, we look forward to the great fulfillment of all the prophecies about Jesus when he returns to the earth to sit on David's throne to bring peace and righteousness to this earth forever. I want to thank you for being with us for these first classes on Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Please stay with us in our next class, which will be led by my friend Greg Robinson on walking with Jesus Christ, who is Jesus Christ. Greg will be looking at what the Bible says about Jesus Christ, the man. May God richly bless each of you. Well, my name is Dave Jennings, and we're continuing in our classes on looking at Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. In this session, we're going to be looking at Jesus Christ in the Psalms. Now, Jesus is talked about a number of times in the Psalms. They were actually the Psalms written by a number of authors. Most are associated with King David, but many others besides King David contributed. King David himself lived about a thousand years before the birth of Jesus Christ. And of all the books of the Bible, it seems the Psalms are the most focused on the coming Messiah. Some of the Psalms have rightly been called messianic because they speak of the coming Messiah, an obvious prophecy about the future work of Jesus. We're just going to look at two of these Psalms. Psalm 22 is what we're going to start with. We look at Psalm 22, and we look for clues about how we can see Jesus in the Old Testament as we begin looking for statements that are made in this psalm, but also by Jesus. So we start off in Psalm 22 in verse 1, and it says, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Now those words for those who have been reading in the New Testament, sound very familiar. The psalm is describing a terrible ordeal that is experienced by the one who says these words. And we're going to come back and look at those in a few moments. But where in the Bible do we see these same words being used? This is looking for an echo, something that we have heard before. And of course, we know that this is when Jesus was on the cross 
in the last part of his life, whenever he says in Matthew chapter 27, it's recorded for us at verse 45, now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Okay, now we're closing in on how to see Jesus in the Old Testament. One way is when we see Jesus himself quoting from a psalm that directs the Bible student to go back to Psalm 22 and to learn more about this dreadful experience on the cross. So let's go back a thousand years and look at the psalm and see what it has to say about the crucifixion of Jesus. Now we want to see in Psalm 22 the precise details that are given that describe the crucifixion of Jesus. Psalm 22 verse 7, All who seek me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Or in Mark's account we read, And those that passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, Aha! You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself and come down from the cross. And also the chief priest and with the scribes mocked him to one and mocked him to one another, saying, He saved others, he cannot save himself. Let the Christ, the King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may say and believe him. Those who were crucified with him also reviled him. So we go back to Psalm 22 and we read these words. I am poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death for dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. Now friends, even with a basic knowledge of the crucifixion, we can readily see how this was prophetic in great detail of the crucifixion experience for Jesus. Let's look at a few of these details. In Psalm 22, it says, My tongue sticks to my jaws. In John 19, we read, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A full jar, a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put it on a sponge, they put a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it to his mouth. Or how about this one? In Psalm 22 it says, They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. In Matthew 27, 35, using the King James here, we read, And they crucified him and parted his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They, they parted my garments among them, and upon my vesture did they cast lots. 
So we're only briefly looking at, these, at this messianic psalm, just a few of the details, but we can clearly see how Psalm 22 spoke about the, crucifix, the crucifixion of Jesus 1,000 years before it happened. Jesus himself, during the 33 years of life that he had on the earth, would have read this passage and known quite well about the suffering that he would endure. Yet because of his obedience to God, and love for us, he endured the shame and the pain of the cross. Our second psalm is found in Psalm 16, written by David. And this is what it reads. Psalm 16 and verse 8. I have set the Lord always before me because he is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That word Sheol is really the word that we would understand for the word grave or pit. So you will not abandon my soul to the grave. Or let your Holy One see corruption. Now this is written by David a thousand years before Christ. So again, what we're doing is looking for places in the New Testament that might alert us to this being a psalm that speaks of David, or excuse me, speaks of Jesus. So where do we find these words quoted in the New Testament? Acts chapter 2. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me. Here's our Psalm 16 quote. I saw the Lord always before me, for he has at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades, that's the Greek form of the word for grave, or let your Holy One see corruption. So here we have Peter in the New Testament talking about the words from Psalm 16. And what he's doing is he's describing this as the hope of David that the Holy One of God would not remain in the grave and see decay and corruption. And he goes on in that same chapter in Acts 2, and he says, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he is both dead, that he has died, and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. You see, in our review of Psalm 22, we saw how Jesus would have been able to read about his crucifixion details long before they actually occurred. And while this would have been difficult, it allowed him to prepare for what was surely coming. But in this case, reading Psalm 16, Jesus could read this and know that he wasn't going to be left in the grave. 
He would not see corruption. And he knew, just as certain as the details of the crucifixion, that he would be resurrected by his father. There are so many other psalms that we could speak about that talk about the life and the work of Jesus. We read of his miracles. We can read about his relationship with his family, his betrayer, uh, and those who are close in his relationship with him and his father. The psalms are evidence of the validity and the veracity of scripture. Jesus loved the psalms and he taught from them. And it's important that when we read the psalms that we look for Jesus Christ. In our last class, we will look at the words of the prophets who spoke wonderfully about Jesus, about his life, his death and resurrection, and in great detail about the role he will yet fulfill when he returns to the earth to be king forever. My name is Dave Jennings, and I would like to welcome you to Walking with Jesus Christ, Who is Jesus Christ? And this is our third section on looking at the survey of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Now, in our last session, we looked at the beginnings of Genesis. We looked at the first three chapters. But now we're going to move forward to chapter 22, and we're going to move to the time of Abraham, about 2,000 years after the creation. Abraham was arguably one of the most important people that we read about in the Bible. Now Abraham had great faith and he went not knowing where he was going to go when he separated from his family. God called him to separate from his family, to leave all those that were close to him. And he didn't know where he was going to go. He accepted being a stranger and a pilgrim and not to go and to build cities. But because of this, God greatly blessed him. And at one point, we're told that he had at least 318 men in his camp that were capable soldiers. He had flocks, and he had great possessions. But the promise that God made to Abraham, that was the center of Abraham's hope, beyond the flocks and the possessions. And we read about that promise when we go to Genesis chapter 13. For we read in Genesis 13 verses 14 through 17, the Lord said to Abraham after Lot had separated from him, lift up your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward and southward and eastward and westward. 
For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. And I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. What a fantastic promise. The land was going to be given to Abraham and his offspring as an everlasting possession. And he would have plentiful offspring. But this must have been really encouraging to Abraham, a man who didn't even have a place that he owned other than a place that he bought to bury his dead. This promise to Abraham is in the New Testament referred to as the promise. It promised that Abraham, who never owned land, would inherit the land with his offspring. But this wouldn't be for a few decades or for the rest of his life. It would be forever. So Abraham understood that there was a future offspring that would be a key to the inheritance of the land. In order for Abraham to receive the land, he would need to be resurrected from the grave. But there was a big problem. He didn't have an offspring. Abraham was aged and his wife was barren. The promise later was reinforced that he, and he was told that indeed his wife Sarah, who was approaching 90 years old, would be the one that would bear a son that would become his seed. Of course, we know that she laughed within herself when she heard this. How can a woman who's 90 years old and a husband who's 100 have a child? She was well past childbearing years, and she'd been barren all of her life. Yet the power of God worked in her life and in Abraham's life for this faithful couple. And indeed, she bore Isaac, a son that she had at the age of 90. So we can only imagine how much Isaac's birth must have been an answer to their prayers and seen as a complete gift of God that they would never forget. Abraham would know that Isaac was critical to the promise that God had made to him. Without Isaac, there would be no seed. And without an offspring, there would be no inheritance. So this young man carried the future of the family, but also was critical to the promise made to Abraham. And Abraham and Sarah must have loved their son so deeply, with all their hearts, it would be their only child, as a couple. Now you may be wondering what this has to do with Jesus. It's coming soon. Because when we get to Genesis chapter 22, at verse 2, we receive this information about a commandment by God to Abraham that I think even Abraham must have been shocked by. He was told, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah, and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. Wait, this is the seed you promised me, God. Isaac hasn't even had children yet. And you told me that the promise would go specifically through Isaac. But you see, Abraham was a man of great, incredible faith. And he knew in his mind that somehow God would provide a way out of this. We learn in Hebrews chapter 11 
that Abraham had reasoned and used logic that if he did sacrifice Isaac as God had asked him to do, that God would raise him up because he knew God would not lie. So Abraham took this three-day journey with Isaac, along with several young men, and wood for the sacrifice. Those three days must have been excruciating for Abraham. Would he have the faith that he needed to go through with this? And finally, when they get to Mount Moriah, we're told that he and Isaac, they leave the servants there, and Isaac carries the wood on his back up to the mountain, not knowing what was going to befall him. And when they reach the summit and pull together the rocks for the altar of the offering, Isaac asks a very logical question. He said, Father, here's the fire, here's the wood, where's the lamb for the offering? Let's read what Genesis 22 verses 8 through 10 says in this moving account. You can imagine the emotion that Abraham when he had when he said this. Abraham said, God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went both of them together. Then they came to the place of which God had told him. Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid on him, laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But just then we read in the 11th and the 12th verse, the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, here am I. And he said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your, your only son from me. God stopped the sacrifice of Isaac. He knew that Abraham had such great faith that he would have been willing to follow even this commandment of God. So up to this point, you might not have seen Jesus. But let's continue on in verse 13. Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by the horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. So instead of Isaac, God would provide a suitable sacrifice. In this case, it turned out to be a ram caught by the horns in a thicket of thorns. Abraham was able to take that ram that was provided by God and sacrifice it there instead. The place itself was called Jehovah Jireh, or the Lord will provide. And further, the angel prophesies that it is there in the same location, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. And this gives us a valuable clue for understanding that this sacrifice is talking about another sacrifice that God would provide. Well, friends, this is just such a rich in allusions to the, to the Lord Jesus Christ. First, we see Abraham a father that had a greatly loved son. 
And Isaac was the seed, his only son, the offspring of Abraham, and critical to the plan of salvation. But Isaac, we see, willingly went with his father and climbed the mountain and carried the wood on his back. Can you think of an echo of how Jesus carried wood on his back leading to his sacrifice? And then there's the place itself. Where was it? It was Mount Moriah. We hear about this later in Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 3 and 1. That is where Solomon began to build the house of the Lord on Mount Moriah in Jerusalem, where the Lord had appeared to David his father at the place that David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. Mount Moriah was in Jerusalem, even though at the time of Abraham it was called Salem. And this was the same place where the temple of Solomon would later be built. It was the general area where Jesus himself would be sacrificed at Golgotha. Now the ram's important here too. God provided the ram instead of Isaac. How can we see something about Jesus there? Well, the ram, how was it caught? It was caught by thorns. The horns of the ram were caught up and snared in thorns. You might recall that one of the curses to Adam was that thorns and thistles would come up when he would garden. And it becomes a symbol of the curse, one of the curses of sin in Scripture. You may also recall that the Romans, when they were taking Jesus to be crucified, platted thorns on the head of Jesus when he was being mocked and eventually taken to the cross. So we figuratively have the ram being ensnared by a symbol of sin. And the ram provided by God was pointing forward 2,000 years when Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, would be sacrificed at the same place. He would be Jehovah Jireh, the Lamb provided by God. Last, we look at the father, Abraham. In a way, we can see in him how we can better understand God because we understand the love of a father for his son. He loved God more and was willing to even sacrifice his only son. And of course, we know that God loved Jesus, his son. We're told in John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. So God's love for man was so great that he did give his only son. There was no last second stoppage. That sacrifice we see prefigured the animal skins for, uh, was prefigured in the animal skins for Adam and Eve and was an innocent and sinless man who willingly gave his life that we might live. In our next session, we'll look at our, in our series of walking with Jesus Christ, who is Jesus Christ, and we'll continue by looking at some of the passages in the Psalms that speak so eloquently about Jesus Christ.
my name is Dave Jennings, and we welcome you back to our brief review of the many places where we read about Jesus in the Old Testament, long before his birth as recorded in the Old Testament. Now, we're going to start at the very beginning today. We're going to look into the book of Genesis, the writings of Moses. Could Jesus have been spoken of all the way back to the beginning of creation, some 4,000 years or more, at least before he was born? What we will see is that while Jesus didn't actually exist as a person, he did exist in the plan and purpose of God. And the key to salvation would be that he would be provided by God. And to fully appreciate the harmony between the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's important to read passages that have similar language and symbols. So let's start with one. Let's start with one in the creation. At the very beginning, the creation and God's command, let there be light. Now at the beginning of creation, we read that the earth was completely in ruin and darkness. There was no life. And when God's spirit began to move on the earth, the first thing that he created and sent into the world was light. And we're further told that the light was good and that God used light to divide darkness. So the very creation, the very beginning of the creation account was that light was sent by God And it was sent to a world that was in full of darkness. As light was provided, the difference between light and darkness became obvious. So that's the natural creation. And after this, we're told in the Genesis record that God created the dry land. He created the skies, the seas, plant life, uh, constellation, sea life, birds, creeping things, beasts, and then finally man. But remember that the creation, the natural creation, all started by God sending light into the darkness. So how can we see Jesus Christ in this story? Well, we're told in the New Testament that Jesus Christ is the light sent into a world of darkness. Speaking of Jesus in John chapter 1, we read this. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in darkness, and darkness has not overcome it. Later on in the Gospel of John, we read in chapter 12 at verse 46, I have come into the world as a light, Jesus says, so that whosoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. So let's put these passages together. In Genesis, God provided light as the beginning of the natural creation of all things. All life and the creation that followed began with the creation of light. But you see, in John's gospel, we're told that Jesus was the light, the light of men. But you see, this is speaking of the spiritual creation of God that is done through Christ Jesus. In Jesus, those who accept the light are made new creatures. 
Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 at verse 17. He says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And further, this light shines, but men must choose light instead of darkness. So we can see Jesus as the light, sent by God into a world of darkness. Light would win over the darkness of sin. And Jesus would begin a new creation, a spiritual creation. And so we read in 1 John chapter 1, at verses 5-7, through 7, This is the message ye have heard from him, and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. So Jesus wasn't specifically mentioned in Genesis chapter 1, certainly not by name, but clearly the concept, the light of creation, foreshadowed how in the natural creation light would be sent and how Jesus later would be the beginning of a new creation, light sent by God that would bring light into a world of darkness. Now, staying in Genesis, we can also remember that very familiar story about Adam and Eve eating of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. This is one of the most well-known stories in the Bible. Adam and Eve had one commandment. Don't eat of that singular tree, the tree of knowledge of good and evil. However, we know that Eve was enticed by what the tree could offer. It appealed to her flesh and her mind. The three things that we're familiar with, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eye, and the pride of life. And the serpent further deceived her, and she made the fateful decision to take of the fruit. Adam and Eve together ate of the fruit, which they knew would bring about severe consequences to include mortality. Now the first reaction when Adam and Eve recognized their sin, was that they wanted to cover their nakedness. They recognized that they were naked. And they wanted to hide their sin from God. And so to do that, they created garments from fig leaves to try to cover themselves. And when God asked Adam, had he eaten of the tree, he blames Eve. And when Eve is asked that same kind of question, she blames the serpent. Instead of confessing sin, They wanted to cover it. And so finally, God imposes the curses on the serpent, on Eve, and Adam. And the greatest of these curses was that man would return back to the dust of the ground. Since in Adam, all men die and have lived under this curse of mortality. But in all this difficulty and this this dire consequence because of sin, yet in these curses we read of a fascinating promise made by God with regard to the hostility between the serpent and the woman. The serpent becomes a symbol of sin. And this is what we read in Genesis 3.15. I will put enmity or hostility between you, speaking to the serpent, and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, 
and you shall bruise his heel. So how do we see Jesus in this passage? The offspring of the serpent becomes biblically a symbol for sin. And we see that symbol used all the way through the Bible, all the way into the book of Revelation. But what does this offspring of the symbol of sin do? And what does it do with regard to the seed of the woman? What we see is that sin bruises the heel of the offspring of the woman. A strike of the serpent on the heel, it certainly isn't enjoyable. And it can be debilitating. But it's not fatal, nor is it permanent. But what the seed of the woman would do is to bruise or to crush the head of the serpent, the symbol of sin. And that will be fatal and complete for sin. So when we put this together, God's plan was to provide through a descendant, Eve, in other words, a human being, one who would conquer and defeat and destroy sin in himself. And this victory over sin would be God's victory. And it would mean for man, who was otherwise condemned to eternal death, that he would have an opportunity to find salvation. Jesus was the seed, the offspring of the woman. He alone conquered sin and he nailed it on the cross. It is through him alone that we can escape the curse of everlasting death. And so Paul wrote in Galatians 4, verses 3 and 5, through 5, in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Jesus destroyed sin in himself by his perfect obedience unto death. And the ultimate victory over sin is yet to come when Jesus returns from heaven and by his grace will bring about the final victory over sin in his kingdom. All right, one last one in Genesis 3. After eating of the tree, we, we mentioned before that Adam and Eve didn't come forward to confess their sin. They did recognize their sin and the physical manifestation that they saw was that they were naked. So instead of confessing their sin, they tried to cover it. We read this in Genesis 3 and verse 7. Then the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. So Adam and Eve hid and tried to cover their own sins and try to conceal them from God. But you see, man can't cover his own sins. Man cannot save himself from sin and the consequences. And so we read in Genesis 3 verse 21 that the Lord God made Adam, made for Adam and for his wife, garments of skins and clothed them. So let's think about that for a moment. What just occurred? Adam and Eve tried to cover their own nakedness and their own sin themselves. But only God can provide a suitable way to cover the nakedness of sin. That garment was a skin of an animal, an innocent animal, that was taken and sacrificed in order to provide a cover for their sins. In Psalm 32, we read in verses 1 and 2, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom 
The Lord counts no iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. So how does this help us to see Jesus? In 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 18 and 19, we read this. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we see then that Jesus was foreshadowed by this innocent animal, sacrificed and provided by God, whose blood was shed that sins might be covered. And we read the blood of Jesus cleanses us, not just covers us, cleanses us from our sin. The forgiveness we receive when we believe in Jesus, when we're baptized into his name, and then we repent of our sins, is that our sins are completely removed. They're gone, as if they never occurred. So we have seen Jesus in just three ways in Genesis 1, 2, and 3. The light sent into the world, the offspring or the seed of the woman that would conquer sin, and the sacrifice and shedding of blood. First of the animal, providing the covering skins, but now the shedding of the blood of Jesus, which provides a means for our sins to be forgiven. There are actually many, many more in these chapters, but we'll move now to to class number three. We're going to move forward 2,000 years to the time of Abraham and to the sacrifice of Isaac. My name is Dave Jennings, and welcome to Walking with Jesus Christ, Who is Jesus Christ? And in these first classes, we'll be looking at how Jesus Christ is spoken of in the Old Testament. There are some important tips which we'd like to share with you about how to uncover these kinds of gems. And it needs to be said here at the beginning that Jesus is spoken of and spoken about through the entirety of the Bible. But as we read the Old Testament, it's hundreds and sometimes thousands of years before Jesus' birth. And so Jesus, we are going to see, is the center of the plan and the purpose of God. The passages that we read today are going to allow us to see how many prophecies were given about Jesus and how many were fulfilled, and in many cases are yet to be fulfilled. But during the times of the Old Testament, these visions of the upcoming Messiah, the Messiah who would come, and his work, 
were so critically important because it was the center of their hope, even during times of persecution, they could look forward to the Messiah coming. And as I said, many of those Old Testament passages have been fulfilled and many of them are yet to be fulfilled. For us today, they are a bright shining light to us. It's a beacon of our hope as we look forward to the return of Jesus and see passages in the Old Testament that are yet to be fulfilled. So let's start in Luke chapter 24. And this is on the road to a little town called Emmaus. Now after the crucifixion of Jesus, many of the believers that were in Jerusalem, understandably, had their faith greatly shaken. And even after the resurrection, some they just didn't understand, or perhaps they just didn't believe that he had actually been raised from the dead. They didn't understand that he needed to die, and they didn't understand the resurrection. And the accounts of women who had seen Jesus and some of the apostles, it just seemed too much to believe for many of them. And there were these two men who were walking from Jerusalem on a seven and a half mile journey to go back to Emmaus, a neighboring town. And so Jesus takes the time to go and to meet them on the road to Emmaus. But he doesn't reveal who he is. And as Jesus is walking along the road with them, he asks them why they were so downcast. Why were they so sad? And one of them, a man who we are given his name, his name is Cleopas, he said that Jesus of Nazareth had been crucified. And he goes on to say, you know, we trusted in him. But he is now dead, and he'd been dead for three days. And while they had heard some stories about the resurrection, they were unconvincing, and they themselves had not seen Jesus in a resurrected form. So they were giving up. They were going home. All hope was lost. Now, in our search for Jesus, we get an insight into who Jesus was. He knew the sadness and the dejection of these disciples that they were leaving. And he purposely goes to them along that road and walks with them in order to restore their faith. So what do we know about this story? Well, Jesus, first of all, asks them, why are they sad? And then he says to them, and this is recorded for us in Luke 24 at verse 25 uh, through 27. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So there you have it. The greatest Bible class of all time, led by Jesus Christ. And what was he teaching them? He was going back to the Old Testament, back to the beginning writings of Moses, starting in Genesis, and showed how there were so many passages that spoke of him. These men had read them before, but they had not 
seen Jesus in them. Jesus interpreted these writings for them, and he opened their eyes. And their reaction, well, it was quite a reaction. After Jesus tarried with them, and he shared a meal, they finally recognized him. But the reaction to Jesus' teaching from the Old Testament was that they said to one another, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked with us on the road? while he opened to us the scriptures. When we read through the Old Testament, the same can be true for us. When we see how Jesus was spoken of in the Old Testament, it arouses within us a deep spiritual feeling. Our hearts can burn within us too. So during these five brief classes, we are going to be taking a look at examples from Old Testament writings, going back to the writings of Moses, into the Psalms, and into the prophets. You know, scholars estimate that there is more than 450 references in the Old Testament specifically about Jesus. They're not always easy to identify. In some cases, we are able to see that a scripture from the Old Testament was speaking about Jesus because a New Testament writer, or even Jesus Jesus himself, wrote about it and spoke about it and showed how it was being fulfilled by Jesus Christ. But there's a number of literary forms that we see in the Bible that help us to be able to understand how Jesus is being spoken of in the Old Testament. There are types, signs, symbols, foreshadowing, and prophecy. So, we use these literary styles to uncover Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. In our second class, we'll look at examples of Jesus found in just the first three chapters of Genesis. Jesus as the light, Jesus as the seed of the woman, and Jesus foreshadowed by the provision of animal sacrifice after the sin of Adam and Eve. In our third class, we'll look at the sacrifice of Isaac and how it points forward to the sacrifice of Jesus 2,000 years later. In our fourth class, we'll look through the Psalms and the Messianic Psalms that talk about the role of Jesus a 1,000 years to come. And in the fifth and last class, we'll examine prophecies from the prophets about Jesus and telling us about his role. So stay with us and examine along with us these wonderful parts of the Bible which help us to know who is Jesus Christ.
Hello. Welcome to Walking with Jesus Christ. This is our second series, and in this series we're going to be looking at what the Bible tells us about who is Jesus Christ. My name is Dave Jennings, and I'm a member of the Christadelphians worldwide. The Christadelphians are a community of about 60,000 members worldwide, and we believe that the Bible is the holy, inspired Word of God. And we're a people that, like you, are seeking Jesus Christ. And we seek Jesus Christ in what we believe, how we worship, and how we behave. So we invite you to share this journey with us as we seek to better understand who is Jesus Christ. Along with the other five speakers, we're very pleased to be able to bring you this new series, which will look at Jesus Christ, his role, and how he fits in the plan of God. In 2020, we were pleased to be able to bring a series about walking with Jesus Christ, the Bible as your guide. Now in that series, we looked at the practical spiritual answers that walking with Jesus can provide to men and women living today. And we examined the teachings of Jesus Christ about interpersonal relationships, the use of money, family life and marriage principles. We looked at the issues of stress and anxiety, how to be a good citizen in the world that we live in today, and how to have a focus on the future in the way that we live. Now this series takes a different look at walking with Jesus Christ. In these classes, we will specifically look at Who is Jesus Christ? What does the Bible tell us about him? And how is he active today in the lives of believers? Ultimately, we will examine what the Bible says about Jesus' return to earth and his role as the worldwide king ruling over this world forever. So we'll have six different topics that we'll be looking at in this series. In class one, we'll look at Jesus Christ in the Old Testament, and we'll see the many different ways in which Jesus Christ was prophesied, going back to Genesis and all the way through the prophets. We'll look at, in class two, Jesus Christ the man, how he was a human being, subject to like passions as we are. In class three, we'll look at Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, who lived a sinless life. In class four, we'll examine his death and resurrection, and why this is such an important subject for believers. And in class five, we'll look at Jesus Christ today. How is he active in the world today? How is he active in the lives of believers today? And then the final class, we will look at Jesus, the future judge and king, and how he will transform this world from what we see today to a world that is filled with the glory of God. We look forward to that day greatly. So we hope for you, as a viewer of these videos, that you will increase your knowledge and understanding of who Jesus Christ is and understand perhaps a little better about the whole plan and purpose of God and how it revolves around Jesus. And will help to increase your appreciation, we hope, 
for his love and how he works in our lives. And by doing this, we hope to all be able to draw closer to him and to feel his presence in our lives. Just a few items to note. First of all, during our classes, all of the references we'll be making to Scripture will be from the English Standard Version, unless it is specifically noted. And there'll be a lot of topics that you may want to get more information on, and we won't be able to deal with them in these videos, but we recommend that you contact www.thisisyourbible.com. And by doing so, you'll be able to find all sorts of really good Bible study resources, everything from studies and pamphlets to even courses that you can take online that allow you to learn more about God's plan and have a greater appreciation for Jesus Christ. So I'll be back in a minute with the first class of Walking with Jesus Christ, Who is Jesus Christ? And in this first set of classes, we will be talking about Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. Thank you.